This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. So today I want to talk to you about the Trinity Western University case at the Supreme Court of Canada. This is perfect to talk about today because it was actually just this morning that I was reading the sort of final draft written by our lawyer to enter at the Supreme Court of Canada, our factum, sort of what our argument is. And I'll sort of tail end my discussion on that because I think it only makes sense to talk about what is this case, what has been happening and why, how did we get involved in it. So Trinity Western University, for those who don't know, is this evangelical university faith school in the Fraser Valley. They have a couple different campuses, I think a couple thousand students. They're not... Bellingham too. They have a Bellingham campus as well. And I know they also have a sort of leadership school for poli-sci students in Ottawa, where they try and go straight into political offices or back rooms. They were a college, and I think a few years ago when a number of provincial governments were doing a big rush to turn colleges into universities, they were one that got sort of the stamp of university. And they're really Canada's most famous faith higher education school. We have a few other sort of Bible colleges and things like that across Canada, but for the most part they're pretty small and just focus on religious education. Trinity Western does try to provide a sort of full complement of liberal arts studies. So you can go there and take different kinds of courses. The school is actually open to students of all faiths and none, and they like to brag about this. If you listen to local radio, eventually I'm sure you'll hear a Trinity Western University ad, especially around enrollment time, I think in the spring. And they don't position themselves as a faith school. They position themselves as a sort of choice, an option for people, something with a smaller, tighter, closer traditional values community. And so they do try to encourage a wide variety of students to come there, and they really like to, sort of like any university, talk up their diversity of campus. At the faculty level, they do require every professor there to sign a statement of faith. And that statement of faith is very specific that says you believe the literal word of the Bible, you believe Jesus is born again, and a number of things. It doesn't force you to be a creationist, per se, but some might argue. But it's a pretty strong, you have to be a Christian, an evangelical Christian, to teach there. The students are required to sign a community covenant, and it's been named a couple, dif- a couple different things over the years, and it's generally a code of conduct, a sort of, if you're going to be at this school, you should obey certain rules, which are based on Christian morality. So it doesn't say that students have to be Christian, it does say that students have to sort of follow the Ten Commandments, don't murder while you're at campus, don't steal, These sort of the obvious things are definitely in there. They also want to just kind of keep, I think, drug and alcohol off campus. Uh, they also, the, but the big controversial ones are that students shall re- abstain from sexual relations outside of marriage, where marriage is later defined as between a man and a woman. So this means you could have a same-sex couple come to the university being treated different as a opposite sex couple where both are legally married in this country. It also requires you to recognize or uphold the sanctity of life from 
natural birth until natural death. And that has been interpreted by some as being opposed to a woman's right to choose her reproductive options, whether she wants an abortion or not. And it's arguably very opposed to the idea of medical assistance in dying. So it's not clear if they would kick out a woman who has an abortion or if they'd kick out someone who, say, signed a witness waiver for their grandparent or someone close to them to have an assisted death. So the community covenant is something that every student has to sign there. And this is where sort of a lot of consternation has come, back, come to. In 2001, the sort of big first case around Trinity Western University was around the Court of Appeal hearing, or sorry, was around the College of Teachers. And so Trinity Western at the time had a teaching program where they trained people to become teachers. Only the BC College of Teachers said, your program looks academically okay. It looks as good as SFUs or UBCs, but we're gonna require those students to go and do a sort of extra certificate from SFU or UBC just to guarantee that they're sort of good teachers. And this is pretty standard for smaller universities that haven't meaten all of the rigors. But Trinity Western's argument was, look, what, what do we need to do beyond the academic stuff to make sure that our teachers are just as good as SFU's teachers, rather than having the Christian students, Christian, remember this is broadly, uh, students going to a Christian school treated differently than a student going to a secular school. And the College of Teachers eventually said, well, you discriminate on admissions with this policy, and so we think that the teachers coming out of Trinity Western are more likely to be homophobes and bigots than teachers coming out of SFU and UBC. And I think a lot of us here might sort of go, that kind of makes sense because if you have a school that is based around a sort of same, you know, uh, opposition to same-sex marriage and its covenant, those teachers are probably agreeing with that. So the Trinity Western University took that through the BC Supreme Court, BC Court of Appeal, and finally the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada at the time said, look, there's no evidence that a teacher coming from Trinity Western is inherently more of a bigot than a teacher coming from SFU. We don't have a lot of them. There's a few out in the school districts who've been teaching who got their sort of after degree certificate from SFU, but there's no proof that they are endangering the children. So on that basis, the rights of these individuals' teachers are being infringed upon because they're being treated differently than teachers who go to a secular school, and it's basically on the basis of those teachers' religions. So the Supreme Court of Canada set that down, that was 2001. 2005 comes wrong, along, and that's when we finally legalized same-sex marriage across the country. So remember, the College of Teachers stuff was all pre-same-sex marriage, so they weren't treating, TW wasn't treating married same-sex couples at that point differently than married opposite-sex couples, because there weren't married same-sex couples. That makes sense, right? The law, we have same-sex marriage since 2005, so 2001 was a different era. It, we flash forward a few years, I think about to 2010 to 2012, and Trinity Western starts talking about, well, we want to open a law school. We want to be able to train lawyers who can then go out into the legal system, do lawyerly stuff, and whatever else lawyers do, maybe become judges, a Supreme Court of Canada judges one day. And each of the law society, the path to becoming a law school is complicated and you have to sort of get your curriculum approved by the Federation of Law Societies 
or law schools of Canada, something like that. And then each law society of the province, of each province, sort of has to approve your graduates and say, all right, it looks like you have a good law school. We will certify that if a student follows your path, they are a lawyer. They get the stamp. The federal, the federation, the national body looked at the proposed curriculum. They looked at all of the sort of academic qualifications of the school and they went, that's all good. Most of the education ministers, advanced education ministers agreed and they got sort of conditional provisional approval. And there was some sort of rumblings at the time that, well, Trinity Western has this discriminatory admissions policy, so they shouldn't just get a rubber stamp. This then came forward to the different law societies and each of them sort of took a different tact. Most law societies just approved the law school. Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, um, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and PEI. Quebec has a different legal system, so they were never going to approve it anyway, and TW doesn't care because they want lawyers to practice in the English law system. If you want to practice in the Quebec law system, you go to a Quebec law school. Slightly different things. But you had these sort of four, three uh, provinces, BC, Ontario, and Nova Scotia, where each law society said no in the end. Nova Scotia and Ontario were pretty clean. They, the law societies there had the debate at their board. The law society is basically like any other nonprofit where the members sort of elect a small number of people to make decisions. It's called the bench. So in Ontario, they had a good clean decision. They decided one of the law, one of the rules sort of governing most of these law societies was they have to protect the public benefit and they have to protect the public good. You know, they can't let dangerous stuff happen or you know it seems rational so the Ontario one went look it's not in the public benefit to allow more spaces for gay or straight Christian students than for gay non-Christians and so they denied it and said if you get rid of this covenant fine that's different but you are creating like an extra space it's almost like if there was a new bus line in Vancouver, but they said, all right, well, no Asians. But then that's okay because it just makes more space on the main buses, the TransLink buses, for everyone because the whites will get off the TransLink buses and then there'll be more space for everyone. And we'll get into that argument. So that was Ontario's reasoning, and they sort of did it cleanly. Nova Scotia did it cleanly as well, but Nova Scotia's law, it turns out, doesn't actually say the law society has to protect the public benefit. So they lost it their Supreme Court, and they lost it their Court of Appeal, and they gave up. So we'll forget about the Nova Scotia case. The Ontario Supreme Court, or Tr Trinity Western, took Ontario's law society, Law Society of Upper Canada, to court over this decision, saying that was unfair, they infringed upon our religious rights, our rights to open a law school and the TW lost at the Ontario Supreme Court and the Ontario Court of Appeal. At the Ontario Court of Appeal ruling the justices looking at this went this is clearly discriminatory against the LGBT community and it hurts and they, so they have sort of flowery language in their decision. BC was more complicated. Initially the bench of the Law Society of BC went Based on the 2001 Court of College of Teachers ruling, it feels like we sort of have to approve this because it's sort of jurisprudent and it's the law in Canada, so we'll approve it. Lawyers in BC were pissed. That's the simplest way to describe it. They started rallying together and organizing big 
sort of protests and getting letters and all these things. And they basically forced a special meeting of the Law Society of British Columbia. And at that special meeting, they sort of got a vote together and they went, all right, let's have a motion that we should have a referendum on this of all lawyers in BC. And the Law Society sort of agreed to that. And they put a vote out to every lawyer in BC and said, should we accept or reject TW's law school application? And it was something like 75% said, no, we should reject Trinity Western's application. This raises sort of the question of tyranny of the majority type questions. Should we be putting these kind of discussions up to massive votes of people, especially when they deal with rights? And you can argue that lawyers ideally think a bit more about the weighing of rights than, say, the public at large. No offense to the public at large, but at least lawyers are supposed to do this as their job. But it's still complicated. So the Law Society board took this vote back and went, all right, we'll accept this. We'll now reject Trinity Western's University Law School. So you had BC sort of accept it and approve it and then have a big vote and then reject it. So they'd awkwardly done both things. At the BC Supreme Court then, because Trinity Western made the same arguments as in Ontario, they said, this is unfair, it offends our rights, etc., etc., and they took them to Supreme Court to say, overturn the Law Society's decision. And the BC Supreme Court basically looked at this process, this yes, vote, no kind of thing, and went, this is not how you should do things. If you're making a decision as an administrative body, you should have a fair discussion. There was also other problems in this decision where TW said they didn't get a chance to put out their position to the members of the Law Society. So it was almost like it was pre-stacked against them. So the justice who heard the trial at the BC Supreme Court said, all right, the Law Society fettered its discretion, which is a technical way of saying they cocked up, and should have actually done it cleaner. And it said, all right, Law Society, do it again. Actually, it didn't say Law Society, do it again. It said the original decision stands, that yes, that approval. There's nothing that says they couldn't have just come back to it and went, oh, we actually, for these reasons or whatever, decided to reject it, as long as those reasons weren't sort of a vote of the majority of lawyers, which is a complicated, messy sort of legal argument. And then the BC Supreme Court sort of just put all of the rights questions, the balancing of religious freedom and the ideas of sort of LGBTQ equality on the side and said, we don't need to address those because your decision was done so poorly that we can sort of undo the decision on that. And you'll see courts do this a lot. They'll often take the easiest way out because then lawyers don't have to sort of hang their reputation on controversial judgments. BC Court of Appeal got really excited about this, though. They brought in their entire justice because the Law Society appealed. Rather than redo the decision here in BC, they appealed it to the, the Court of Appeal, and that's where we intervened with the Canadian Secular Alliance, who were bringing forward a couple arguments that I'll get into. The Court of Appeal wanted to really make this decision stand no matter what they did. So they did a couple unusual things. First, they had all five justices sit and hear the case. Usually you only have three of them hear it and it's sort of a majority opinion. In this case, they had all five sitting there in the court, which was quite the sight. They had two and a half days of hearings, which was still pretty long for the Court of Appeal. And 
Then in the end, when they wrote their decision, they wrote it unanimously and no one signed it, which meant they all agreed with it perfectly. Often you'll see, you know, this is a decision written by Justice X, agreed with by Y and Z, and then there might be another decision sort of that agrees with it but is a pedant about something. And then you might see a couple dissenters who disagree for whatever reasons. In this case, it was just all five went along with it. And of course, as we know, they sided with Trinity Western University. So the arguments we brought at that point were sort of twofold with Canadian Secular Alliance because they'd been working on them. And the point we decided to intervene was sort of too late to find pro bono counsel of our own and come up with novel arguments because each intervener has to bring something unique. And for those who don't spend as much time as I do sort of following courts and stuff, interveners are groups with an interest in the case who can bring different arguments. So in most court cases, you have the accused, the person who committed the crime, and you have the sort of government trying or the person accusing them. And you go, all right, whose arguments are best? And they stack up and they win. It's not always balanced like that. In criminal cases, obviously, you need a lot more evidence, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt and those kind of things. Interveners will come in and say, well, actually, if you decide it this way, these are the effects it could have. Or if you decide it this way, these are the effects. Or have you thought about this argument? Because sometimes those two parties have no reason to bring forward certain arguments. Here in BC, for example, the Law Society, because they'd said, yes, it's okay to accept, uh, approve TWU, and then no, it's not, had to awkwardly argue that it was both reasonable to accept it and reject it, because otherwise they'd be sort of going back on their past evidence. So they actually stood in court before these five justices and sort of talked out both sides of their mouth like, you know, it's entirely reasonable that we reject Trinity Western for all these reasons, but it's also entirely reasonable that we accept them. But what the court should do is just defer to us because we clearly know what we're doing. They were, they were sort of screwed from the start, but in any case, the Court of Appeal got really interested in the human rights decisions, uh, human rights questions beyond the sort of procedural stuff, and that's where sort of we come in. So on Trinity Western's side, as best as I can sort of argue their case, which is not my place to do because I'm obviously hugely biased in this, having worked on two appeals now, or two interventions, is that the government shouldn't be looking at these sort of religious questions. They should be allowing a religious group to do things in their own way. They're saying, you know, Trinity Western's a faith school, it's a religious school. For the government to be judging them based on their definition of marriage, which is a religious one, is discriminatory. It offends the charter. So we have the right to religious freedom, so you can't look at this. The LGBT sort of position is, as I sort of talked about earlier, where opening up additional spaces doesn't actually make it easier for everyone to get in. It makes it easier just for a select few, and that's not equal, and that's not fair. So it's those two sort of competing rights that come up against each other. What we came in and argued was sort of two things with Canadian Secular Alliance. First, we said opening a law school is not actually a religious activity. There's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt have a law school. There's nothing that sort of follows from having a religious faith that says, therefore, your faith must lead you to open a law school and have that protected. It's a secular activity. And so if it's a secular activity, we can apply secular law to it and look at the equality question. So we don't even consider religion and religious freedom. 
the other argument we sort of brought in with them was if this goes forward, then what we have is by TW's own admission, they allow students of all faiths and none. But they are requiring students of all faiths and none to live by a Christian ethos, a Christian code of conduct. It's therefore state approval and state sanctioning, if they approve this school, of coercing students into living by Christian ethics. I think that was a, hard, a harder argument to make. I don't think many courts were going to buy it, but I thought it was a good one to sort of bring up. Because sometimes if you bring up a good argument, it might not win the day, but it might get the judges thinking in a way that they'll buy other arguments on your side. There's a lot of strategy in law, which is all fascinating. Unfortunately, neither of those arguments, which the Canadian Secular Alliance made here in Ontario and in Nova Scotia, made it into any decision either way. The courts will often sort of take arguments they disagree with and tell you why. In this case, they didn't. They sort of just went, yeah, they're off on the side that argued equality stuff. We're like, no, we argued two specific things. It would have been nice for you to like listen to us or take us seriously, but they didn't. So that was sort of the BC Court of Appeal. They ultimately decided it in favor of TWU. My favorite time listening into that hearing was when one of the justices was sort of examining uh, TWU because these appeal hearings are interesting. Everyone sort of submits a paper factum, sort of your arguments in writing, and then you get a certain amount of time to argue it in front of the judges, and the judges can question you on it and say, oh, how do you know that, whatever. And one of the judges asked TWU's lawyers, well, what happens if there's only one law school in the province and it has a discriminatory code? Would then there not obviously be discrimination? And if there was only one law school, wouldn't the law society be justified in looking at its admissions criteria and saying, we only want the one law school. If there's only one law school, it should have to provide equal access to the law or else the law society is directly discriminating. The judge asked that question. TW had no response because there is no response to it. It's a, the argument they're making is they're only opening 60 additional law seats in a province where there's maybe 1,000 or whatever the number is between, SFU, or between UBC and UVic. Unfortunately, that argument didn't make it into the decision either because I thought it was a neat one. So now TW has one in, Ontario, or one in BC and lost in Ontario. The Ontario Law Society, no, sorry, TW is appealing the Ontario case. The BC Law Society is appealing the BC Court of Appeal case, and both of them are now at the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court, knowing that these two cases are basically the same, except for the administrative muddledness of BC, has just decided to hear them together. They are still two cases, but it doesn't make sense for them to have multiple days of hearings to hear the same arguments over and over, except for some administrative ones, which, fine, we'll put those over there. They're not interesting to anyone except lawyers. So they agreed to hear this, and they initially scheduled sort of one day for hearings, which is actually pretty standard for the Supreme Court of Canada. They actually reject most cases they get because they don't have a lot of time. There's only nine judges, I believe, on the Supreme Court of Canada eight after the end of this year until they get another one on. And so they said, all right, one day. And so Justice uh, Richard Wagner wrote the who gets in, and we made our application saying we want to bring forward our own arguments this time because 
after talking with the lawyers with Canadian Secular Alliance and with another lawyer who'd come forward to us while we were intervening in the Court of Appeal case who was like, I want to write you guys an argument. He like literally Googled groups to represent and found us and said, can I, I really want to be in this case. I just need a group. Would you be interested in that? And I'm not one to turn away that enthusiasm. So we have him, uh, Wes McMillan from Hackamy Ridgedale in downtown Vancouver, working all this weekend on writing the final draft of our submission, which goes in tomorrow. We have a, we have a groupie. Well, he was more a lawyer who was interested in this case and needed a group, as opposed to really interested in the group and needed a case. But we have lots of cases for him, so. So, the, so Richard Wagner was looking at all the applications to intervene and initially said, all right, well, we can't fit all of them. There was about 30 who actually applied to intervene in this case because there's groups like the Christian Legal Fellowship, the Evangelical Church of Canada, United Church wanted in on this. The United Church is on our side, by the way. A um, number of other religious groups. Then there's LGBTQ equality groups. There's West Coast Leaf that wants to sort of bring up the abortion question. And feminists are excluded from there, which no court has really dived into. Unfortunately, I think it's an interesting one. Uh, as well as some civil liberties groups, like, on different sides. So there's way too many groups to tr possibly hear them all. So he made an initial list of, here's some groups that I think would be interesting to hear from. And what people noticed almost immediately, as soon as that was released and started tweeting about, because lawyers are on Twitter too, was there wasn't a single LGBT group on there. There was a number of Christian groups. There was a sort of civil liberties group and some lawyers groups. But there wasn't any group representing gay people who were the ones arguably directly affected by this admissions policy. And there were a lot just going, you thought that was fair? And the process around approving interveners is one of the courts most opaque. They don't release really reasons. They don't really like to talk about things they do behind the scenes in the court because they don't sort of want their things second-guessed. Our courts are supposed to be objective. They're supposed to be the reasons they write out in the final decision is law. And so thinking of justices as human beings, which they are, sort of weakens our faith in the court system. And the court system only really exists because we believe in it. If we all sort of stop believing in it as a society, we'd fall back into Hobbesian anarchy. So there was this awkward, I think he released the decision on a Friday of who got in, and over the weekend there was just a lot of anger and fr a lot of confusion is what I found. It wasn't even angry, because people sort of just accept that the court's rulings are what they are. And by Monday, something weird happened in that the Chief Justice, Beverly McLaughlin, actually issued a update to his um, initial who gets in. And she said, everyone gets in now, because we'll have an extra day. So I'll extend the schedule We'll have two days of hearings rather than one because each person who intervenes gets five minutes to speak, which is a very short amount of time to make some complex legal arguments and 10 pages of written arguments. But we'll have two days and everyone gets in. And this sort of even more confused everyone because this has literally never happened in our legal system as far as anyone knows. So 
lawyers were sort of, where did this come from? How did this happen? And then for whatever reason, Justice Wagner speaks to the Globe and Mail about the decision and talks about how he had a phone call with Beverly McLaughlin, the Chief Justice, who's retiring about this and the controversy and how they'd been sort of following the social media. And then they decided to sort of revise their order, which you won't see judges' names in the paper very often as the story. It'll be so-and-so release this decision. It won't be, oh, how are you doing today, Mr. Wagner? It's, so that was the third most unprecedented thing to happen that week. And because Beverly McLaughlin, as Chief Justice, is retiring, there's a lot of suspicion that Wagner, who's the sort of most, has been on the court the longest, would be the next in line. But he may have just shot that chance because judges don't tend to talk to the media because, again, it undermines the faith in the objectivity of the court, which, again, is a myth. So that was all weird, but the long and short of that weird aside is worrying. We initially weren't. That sucked, and we were just going to kind of move on with it. But then we were in, so that's exciting. Everyone's in, which means the Supreme Court of Canada, which I actually visited when I was in Ottawa earlier in August, is a very small courtroom for the Supreme Court. It's a big courtroom. It has seats for 30 to 50, I'd say. But when you have 30 interveners, and each intervener wants to probably bring two lawyers, and each party, and there's three parties, wants to probably bring about four or five lawyers, there's not a lot of room for just audience to come and sit. There's like three rows, and they'll probably even be taken up. So they're going to have some weird seating issues and probably like overflow rooms. The nice thing about the Supreme Court of Canada is it's despite that weirdness of not telling us why they made an order and then changed it, they are willing to have cameras in the courtroom, so you can actually watch the live stream of our hearings when it happens on November 30th and December 1st. So that's nice. So we got approved, which meant we have until tomorrow to submit our arguments, and different groups have been bringing different arguments. And what we decided at the board level and in discussions with the lawyer what we really wanted to focus on was this idea that can an organization have a religion? Can an organization claim religious freedoms? I follow US law in sort of not as close as Canadian law, but because it's of interest and it's going in a bad direction. One of the biggest dangers that has happened recently in the US was the Hobby Lobby decision, which many of you will probably be familiar with, which is where a Christian for-profit craft store decided it didn't want to take part in the Obamacare package that said they had to give out birth control or cover birth control for their employees. And they said, we're a religious company. We're a Christian company. We don't believe in birth control for whatever reason. So we shouldn't have to fund that for our employees, even though every other company does. So eventually that case made it to the Supreme Court of, Canada, uh, Supreme Court of the United States. And the majority opinion eventually there said, yeah, you are a religious company, so you have a religious right to opt out of the law. In Canada, we've never had that question come up directly. What we have had is either groups challenge religious laws or otherwise, but our court has always found a way to refer it back to the individual. So the first sort of big question around religious rights in Canada was this Big M Drug Mart ruling back in the 80s. And this was a store, I think it was in Alberta, that wanted to be open on Sunday, but they had a blue Sunday law, which meant every store had to close on Sundays. And the store went, well, this isn't fair. We're not 
a Christian company. We're just a company, and we would like to be open on Sundays. And so the court eventually struck down the law, saying the only purpose of this law is religious, and Canada can't have laws based on religion. We can have laws based on other things that maybe affect religion, and we can talk about that, but religious-based laws have no place in a society that has the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as it is, which says everyone has to be treated equally with respect to religion. So that's gone, and they didn't even look at whether the company itself was religious or not. And there have been similar cases, the most recent being this Loyola High School case, which you may have heard out of Quebec. Quebec brought in a world religions course where they basically said every school in the province, public and Catholic, has to teach about every world religion and secular ethics and do it in an objective way. This is a nice idea, one that I know many of you are very supportive of, and I am myself, because it's a nice way to sort of learn about others and sort of break down barriers and think a bit more critically. This Catholic high school said, that's absurd, we're Catholic, we should be able to teach them all from a Catholic point of view. We'll talk about how they're all wrong and then how Catholicism is amazing. And that went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada where they eventually said, all right, your fundamental purpose is religious, you're a religious group. Or they didn't actually say that. What they said was, it doesn't make sense to tell Catholics to teach Catholicism from an objective point of view. It's not going to be objective. So they sort of gave them an op a carve out for that. But they said the other religions they have to teach objectively. They had to be fair about them. So it was like a very narrow limit for that. The minority, because there, there was a sort of majority decision that said that, the minority said, well, but they're a religious group, so they should just be able to opt out entirely. And here's a simple test why. So what we're basically saying to the Supreme Court of Canada is that minority decision in that case, or that dissent that says because they're a religious school, they should be able to opt out of law is a dangerous path to go down. We don't want to do that as a country. We've never tried to do that. And we should recognize that organizations don't believe things. People run organizations. Peoples believe things. But when you have an organization, what you have is a group of people who probably don't all agree. Trinity Western could tomorrow be taken over by United Church members who then are still Christian, but change the community covenant to reflect uh, support for same-sex marriage. Would, but then we have sort of the idea that it's Christian to be against gay marriage and it's Christian to be for gay marriage. And how does the court try to treat that? Would it then be, oh, they unjustly changed it? So the organ it doesn't make sense to have an organization sort of as a single element of religion. There are sort of individual aspects of religion, and there are communal aspects of religion, sort of if people get together, they should be able to decide this is what our faith believes, but there has to be strict limits on that, or else you sort of get it running away into the point where it's coercing people within their community and forcing them to sort of all accept the same things. And so what we sort of spell out in our factum, which I'll need to read twice more to really be able to eloquently talk about this, but today sort of practice, is if we are going to accept that organizations have some amount of religious freedom or can claim that, then we have to be very strict about what they can claim. And human rights laws in Canada actually do this in some provinces. So human rights codes do exempt religious organizations a lot of the time, but usually just for nonprofits and ones that have activities directly related to their religious purpose. So a church, I'm almost done, then I'll take questions. A church will have a good reason not to want its minister to perform a same-sex marriage if their religion doesn't believe in that. 
but if a church runs a thrift store, should they be able to tell their staff members what to believe and do when they're at home at that thrift store? Because the thrift store is not sort of a fundamental part of the religious character of a church. So Salvation Army runs thrift stores. Can we force them? And that's sort of where our argument is. We will publish it in full with the much more eloquent version that our lawyer wrote up tomorrow when it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. And I hope that gives you an update. We will still need some additional funding. We have a bit in the bank right now for this case. Our lawyer's doing this all pro bono, otherwise it would be about $400 an hour, and I don't want to think about how many hours he's thought about this and all the meetings he's had with me. But we do need to fly him to Ottawa to actually make this case in person. I'll probably also go to Ottawa so that we can get some press and make it look good, and I can tell you in human talk what he argued, because lawyers are sometimes a bit verbose. And we also have a few fees just with filing things. But that's, our, that's the state of our case. The hearings are on November 30th and December 1st. We have no clue what the Supreme Court of Canada is going to decide, and it will be sometime in the middle of next year, probably, when we hear. So thank you. <laughs>